Hit the right button first. All right, good to be. Green means go. We got a goat. We got a goat sign. Uh, Chris and Art Gilmore are my friends. They're very dear to my wife and I, and uh, we certainly appreciate everything that they've done for us. Um, I, I, I don't know any pastor in America tonight. I've uh, had the privilege of preaching in meetings with Dr. Hiles, I've heard a lot of men and met a lot of men over the 30-some years that I've been saved, or almost near 40 years now. I don't know anybody that preaches what he sincerely believes about standards with conviction and a heart that loves his people. And I certainly appreciate that. I didn't come here to necessarily praise him. That's not the case, but I do want you to know that I, I do love him very, very much and do appreciate him very much. And I wouldn't be where I'm at right now in my personal life if it was not for my pastor. Uh, so with all of that said, uh, let's see what God has for us tonight. Make your Bibles, if you would, tonight and turn to the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. I don't, I don't need it. It's under Judge. Don't you got it on? Don't touch it. Did they go off? The green light's off. I'm good. <laughs> all right, that's power without the green light. I don't know what's going on, but we'll take it. All right. Mark chapter 2. I want to give you tonight the very best that I have. I, I don't know that I'll ever stand to preach again, quite frankly. I don't have that assurance, and I don't know that I'll see tomorrow either necessarily. So let me give you all that I have tonight, and I trust that uh, if you'll be kind enough to me, you'll give me all the attention that you can muster tonight as long as you can. I understand that the seat of understanding can only endure so much and grasp so much, so uh, we'll try to make sure we get done before that begins to, to work on us tonight. Mark chapter 2. The Bible says there, and again he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noise that he was in the house. Our Father, we thank you tonight for your goodness. We thank you tonight for your goodness. 
Lord, we desperately need to not just be able to claim a verse from Scripture, a promise, and intellectually understand it tonight, but we desperately need here in our church to feel it. So, Father, tonight, if you could, for just a few moments, allow the people that I've sat with for a few years now to experience the physical breathing, living presence of your person in our services. I would be glad to cease from speaking that we might just enjoy and bask in the greatest sense of understanding our God that we'll ever have. Lord, we come to church with faces covered as COVID is here, but not covering our faces as if Moses covered his because of the Shekinah glory. We come tonight, Lord, needing much, and probably needing more than we could ever understand. So, dear God, I pray that you would be God again in our lives here tonight for just a few moments. And may we leave this place differently than when we walked in. In Jesus' name we pray. And amen. I couldn't say tonight how many years ago it was, but it was shortly after I was saved. I was invited to a Bible study and then eventually um, became a member of an independent Baptist church not far from here. Little did I know that we lived in one of the most historic places on the face of our country when it came to Bible preaching. And I remembered David Brainerd becoming introduced in my Bible college days. And the only thing I knew about Brainerd's was on the other side of the river in New Jersey, there was a bar, the SS Diane in Brainerd's. And then I realized that Brainerd's was named after David Brainerd. David Brainerd died spitting blood, preaching to the Indians in the, in the snow. That's how they knew he died from tuberculosis. Was offered the presidency of Princeton. Refused it to carry the gospel to a lost group of people. And in that little church that I attended, I remember getting invited to the men's prayer meeting. I, I thought, I've arrived to some sort of spiritual place in my life that I could be invited to the prayer meeting, and I made my way on Saturday morning to that prayer meeting into the little office of, of, the, of the pastor that was there. There were four metal folding chairs that we would sit on, and we would discuss the latest sports activities, things here, there, what was in the news for a while, and then we would uh, sit in the chairs and pray around in a circle. I remember it was sometime, maybe the third or the fourth time, I'm not sure what exactly uh, the reason was, but we, uh, we, I guess it was a little cramped in there, maybe, but we were moved from the little office into the auditorium. I often 
through in my mind would like to go back to that place, and uh, I've driven by it several times. I look every time I go by, and I remember the pews that were in there. They were uh, a solid oak pew, and they were they were bowed uh, pews, and if you, and they would rock because they were not very they were loosely they would rock, and sometimes when you would rock on them, they would open up the, the where the boards were unglued, and they'd reach up and pinch you. It was called Hallelujah pews. <laughs> I, re- I remember that morning as if it were yesterday. We made our way down a, a short hallway into the auditorium. We sat around, uh, not close to each other, at a distance. And I, I, I sat right as you walked in. There was an aisleway, and, and I, I dropped on the end of the pew right there and sat down. I don't remember who prayed first. I do know the names of each of the men that were there, and we have never discussed this since that day ever. Somehow I think it was too sacred to be able to be talked about. But I do remember that my pastor at that time was the last one to pray. And I'm not sure exactly where I fit in there, second or third, but I know that I was not first. I can remember sitting in that auditorium that morning, and as that man began to pray, all of a sudden something something began to settle in in the auditorium that I had not really experienced quite before. It was much like the night that I got saved, in that rehabilitation center in Wilkesboro, Pennsylvania. And as, that, as that, that heaviness settled in on me, I began to squirm in the pew. I don't believe I was under conviction necessarily of anything that I shouldn't have been doing at the moment, but all of a sudden I felt like I was totally irreverent sitting. And so I slipped to my knees and listened to the prayers of that brother in Christ. It went on for a few minutes, and I could hear him weeping. And then as if on my knees, I felt almost irreverent still on my knees at that particular moment. And so I I didn't know what else to do. I'd read my Bible through several times. had an insatiable appetite for the scriptures. I I would read 40, 50, 60 chapters a day until I was done with the scriptures. Every morning, I would get up between 4 and 5 and read until I had to get cleaned up to go to work. And then take my Bible and every break, lay it open and, and, and read as much as I could during the break time. I laid prostrate on the carpet of that concrete floor where it was carpeted. Sometime in the midst of all of that, we, I lost track of time. I remember not wanting to open my eyes for I feared that I would see God. That's how real the presence of God felt. When all of that seemed to lift off, as my pastor finished his prayer, I was drained from what little bit of strength that I would have had, and I pushed myself up off the floor, and I looked down where my head was, and there was a puddle of tears the size of a basketball in the carpet. No one spoke. No one said goodbye. We filed out one at a time to our vehicles, left and went home. When I arrived home, it was well after 1.30 in the afternoon, and we had met at 9 o'clock in the morning. It was, went on for hours, that prayer meeting, and it seemed like moments. I never forgot that. I came to church every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday, and every moment the doors were open, and I know you do too. 
hoping that that would happen one more time. Wanting it to happen one more time. I tonight cannot begin to tell you how many times I've seen that happen, how many times I've experienced that in my life. I've kind of lost track of them. I, I, I wish I would have written everyone down, but I haven't. But one that sticks in my mind tonight was as we walked away from a, a, a tabernacle at a, at a camp where teenagers were. I, I always enjoyed preaching to teenagers because their parents weren't around. They were so much more spiritual when their mom and dad wasn't around for some reason. I don't know what the reason was. But I remember preaching uh, one evening there in camp. I usually did not preach the evening service. Mine was the morning uh, service, and then the camp director would preach in the evening. But that evening I was preaching, and I, I remember a young man coming. I believe his name was Travis. My wife may uh, be able to correct me if wrong. He was from a church in Fort uh, Myers, Florida, if I'm not mistaken. I did meet his parents years later, but Travis got right with God. He was into Satanism, and Travis came that night and brought his, his CD player. It was, a, it was an interesting thing. It was worth about $300 at the, de- at the time. They could change CDs, you know, and it was, it was top-of-the-line type thing, and everybody there, he wanted to burn it because he'd used it for worshiping the devil. But uh, Travis had gotten saved along to Bible college out in the Northwest someplace. And as far as I know, Travis is pastoring now somewhere. But as I walked out of that tabernacle that night, my oldest uh, boy with us at the time was Eric. We were living in a, in a 40 foot, 35, 40-foot coach and traveling around holding evangelistic meetings. And he stayed back to walk with me to the the kitchen area where they had their snacks after the service. And he said, Dad, it's happening again. What are you talking about? He said, Dad, it happened again. I said, okay, what what, what happened again? Dad, God was here tonight. I could feel God so powerful tonight. He was here tonight. It happened again. I thank God my kids got to experience that. Now, there was a day in the life of Simon and Cleophas as they walked along the road. The Lord had been crucified and and, and risen. And little be knows to them, he comes alongside of them and begins to walk with them, and he begins to preach a sermon that begins in the Old Testament and, and transpires the entire stretch of Scripture all the way to their present day. And then in a moment, at the end of the journey, it seemed like, where the Scripture said he would have made as if he were to go, go further, they constrained him to stay with them. I don't know if, if it was how it happened exactly. They, they asked for prayer before they ate the meal. I don't know if his sleeves went up on his, across his hands and they saw the prints of the, of the nails in his hand, whatever it was. I don't know exactly how they knew it, but they looked at one another when he vanished out of their sight and all of a sudden they said, did our hearts not burn within us while he walked with us along the way? And he opened the scriptures to us. I believe Isaiah experienced it the day that he saw the Lord high and lifted up. He said, I'm a man of unclean lips. Moses experienced that real presence of God to where he viewed the Shekinah glory of God nestled within that rock 
and we, we sing that song uh, about the rock cleft in the rock, and there was Moses there, but he covered his face because his face shone so much. It was, it was, it, it was there he had been with God, and I've seen people come out of their prayer closet with that same look on their face, that Shekinah glory, that they've seen something. They've been with God. They'd experienced something that was just more than a promise. Now listen, I'll be the first to tell you, wherever two or three are together, together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. I'm not talking about the intellectual understanding tonight that we have from the Word of God. I believe this book wholeheartedly. Stephen saw the Lord standing at the right hand of the Father. But I believe John the Revelator brings some really interesting light inside of all this. Look with me, if you would, to the book of Revelation chapter 1, because I think here tonight we find something here in the book of the Revelation dealing with the subject of the churches that brings a little understanding to, to what we're trying to experience and what we really need in life. Let me tell you something tonight. We need to know that God loves us. There was a point in my life if somebody asked me, do you know that God loves you? I would say, well, of course. For God so loved the world. He first loved us. That's why we love him. But if they were to ask me at that same moment, do you feel that God loves you right now? I would have had to answer, no, I don't feel it. We've lived so long in independent Baptist circles that we forget that God strokes the cords of our heart and we can feel him and understand him and know him. We've let the charismatics have all of that. Now, we should feel him in a way that the scriptures do not describe, but certainly God is able to strum the strings of our emotions tonight and make us feel something and understand something and believe something because we know it's real. In Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, John begins to write this. He said, I, John, who am also your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and the patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God. He was exiled there. I think Pastor explained it the other day very profoundly. It was a rock. It was not a island in, in, the, uh, in, in the Caribbean where you would enjoy your stay, quite frankly. He said, I was exiled there. I was in the Isle of called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ for what he believed and what he preached. And in this lonely spot, John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now watch this tonight. And heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first, the last. What thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And then John records, and I turned to see the voice that, that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks in, in the midst 
of the seven golden candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, girt about with paps, with a golden girdle in his head, and his hairs were white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes were a flame of fire, and his feet like undefined brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as a sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. By the way, watch your scriptures. He'll define what that two-edged sword is. It is the word of God. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me. I'd say he got touched by God. Hmm? Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. By the way, the devil doesn't have the keys to his own house. which means he doesn't have any authority, none. He said, write these things which thou hast seen and things which are and the things which shall be hereafter and the mystery of the seven stars. Now watch tonight because this is, this is, this is living out your, your Bible study of, of, uh, on Sunday mornings of bibliology. This, watch what this said. I think Anthony said it. The Bible doesn't need to be edited. The best commentary on Scripture is Scripture. We don't need to make up definitions when God gives us one of what's there. Just read far enough, you'll find out what it means. And if you didn't get it, read it again. He said, write these things which thou hast seen and which things are and the things which shall be hereafter and the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Aren't you glad this church got an angel looking after it? I just wish he was more of a mechanic than he was an angel sometimes. <laughs> Fix that truck out there. And then he said, and of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Now we get the angels of the churches, we got the seven churches. But I draw your attention back to verse 13 because who is in the midst of the seven churches? Jesus. Go to Revelation chapter 3. Those seven churches are described here in the scriptures, and this in chapter 3 is the last of the seven churches. And beginning in verse number 13 of chapter 3, it says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Notice he didn't say, let him see what it says. He said, let him hear. Hear what it says. The first thing that John the Revelator said is he, what, heard a voice behind him. He didn't see anything. He heard something. He heard something. He turned. He saw. He fell down prostrate, and he got a touch from God, and God raised him back up. He felt something. He said, let him hear. What the Spirit saith unto the churches and unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write these things, say the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou were hot or cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Well, there's a couple things here, and I don't have time to, to, to unpack this part of Scripture tonight for the sake of time and really where I believe God wants us to go. But we find here there's a comfortable numbness in this group of people. 
He said, you're lukewarm. You're neither cold nor hot. I'll spew thee out of my mouth. He goes on to verse 17. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. You have a comfortable numbness. You have a needlessness. He goes on to describe them. Thou knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, and blind, and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich in white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed. The shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eyes said that thou mayest see. What you don't know about Laodicea, perhaps, is that it had a very, very reputable garment industry and made garments of the highest quality. They also had a medical school there, uh, uh, that dealt with eye and vision, and they had an eye salve that was matched nowhere else in the entire world, if history is true. He tells them to anoint your eyes that you might see. There was a blindness or no perception with this group of people. They couldn't see what they were. But again, I want to remind you, they couldn't see, but God said, I want you to hear first. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Now watch verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Now listen to me tonight. Christmas, we have him walking in the midst of the candlesticks. We move a couple chapters further in the scripture and definitely in time, if we would look at a time frame when all this is happening, and now all of a sudden, we don't have him in the midst of the church anymore. We got him at the door knocking. And let me let you in on something this evening. Jesus doesn't show up only where he's wanted, and number two, where he's needed. Go back to the book of Mark for just a moment. Look at Mark chapter 6 and verse number 48. This is the story of Jesus walking on the sea. And in verse 47, it, it, the Bible says, let's go to verse 46. Verse 45, it says, straightway he constrained his disciples to get in the ship to go to the other side before Bethsaida while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. And when the eve was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea and he alone in the land, on the land. By the way, the, God sent him out into a storm. Jesus sent him into the storm. Let me tell you something. It's not always the will of God for everything to be okay. And if it was, I've been out of his will for a while. <laughs> but it's not always okay. But he's always willing to be in the storm with you. Hey, he may not be in the boat, and that's fine, but if he comes walking on the sea, he's still there. And so he's walking on the sea. And in verse 48, he saw them toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. About the fourth watch of the night, he cometh unto them walking upon the sea, and watched what it says, and would have passed them by. Except for one thing. They begin to cry out. They begin to recognize 
that he, he was, there was a need. The Bible says Jesus came into the boat, still the, the waves, and started and calmed everything down. He only is going to show up where he's wanted and where he's needed. All right, go back to Mark chapter 2. Here in the story we find in Capernaum that it, Jesus was in Capernaum and, and for a period of time, some days, the scripture says, and it was noise that he was in the house. Now, could you imagine if we could advertise that Jesus was preaching here at First Baptist Church? And we could adequately advertise that, get that message out that the Lord is preaching here at this church. And uh, do you know, the Bible said there was... Verse 2, and straightway many were gathered together in so much that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them, and they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy. So this place is packed. Can I tell you, people come when they believe something is really going to happen. I don't come to church to see you. I like it when I see you. I enjoy, enjoy the specials when those that sing specials sing, and I've missed that terribly. I'm tired of singing with a mask on. But I come because it might happen one more time. I, 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 I study everything that goes on here. By the way, it looks so much different from up here than it does from down there. And I have studied the ministry of this church. I have an entire filing cabinet on the pastor's wife. Money, I will begin to release small information if you really want to know. I, I don't say this to be hurtful. I don't say this to try to discourage the ministry here, my pastor, my pastor's wife, or any of the people that are here. And I, these are the, you are the choicest people of this church. But we've been about that close from having God move in on our services on occasions in the tent, in this building, in this room. But we just haven't quite experienced it. Yeah. So the room is full. They've come. It says there's so many of them. Oh, not as any room, no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And, I, and, and look at this. We did, he didn't have a three-ring circus going on, all right? We, we didn't have special activities. We weren't giving away free hot dogs on the buses. We, we weren't having any, any, any special activity for the adults in the, in that came. We were going to have donuts and coffee and all the rest. The Bible simply says one thing. He preached the word of God. That's it. He reared back and exercised his lungs 
and he gave out the words that became the words of our scripture tonight, and he put it written down for you and I so that we have them, and he preached the word of God. That was the attraction. That was what began the life-changing thing to take place. It takes place from the word of God. And in verse 3 it says, And they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. Now I am totally about to ruin your theology here in just a few minutes, okay? But let me remind you, it's in the word of God. You can check it out when I'm done. You got four people trying to get somebody to church. And they just believed if they could get him to Jesus, something would change. Are you listening? It has never been easy to get people to Jesus. We read a little further, and it said, They could not come nigh unto him for the press, and they uncovered the roof where he was, and when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy. That's a lot of work to get somebody in church, amen? And when Jesus saw their faith, T-H-E-I-R, it wasn't the faith of the one that was sick of the palsy that got him there. It was the, four, the faith of the four that were there. Let me help you out tonight. Do you know what the, problem what the problems that happen in church? Well, I'm not going to invite anybody to church. Because you just never know when my pastor might, he might get off on alcohol. I'm glad he does. God forbid if he preaches on dress standards, what are they going to think? What if he rips on sin? Huh? I mean, he really rips into this thing. But immorality. They're going to get offended. They're never, let me tell you something. Sinners will never know they're sinners until they get offended. But people are afraid to invite somebody to church because of what may be said, what may happen, what, who may be offended, who may not be offended on that particular point. And we're, we're thinking in our head, if he would just preach some easy message about salvation, it might be okay and leave out the part about repentance, you know, where you don't have to turn from your sin. It's just this easy believism thing where you just believe and everything's going to be okay. It, it doesn't work that way. Now, don't ask me to explain to you how that God's will and my will come together and it meets together. It's the mystery of Christ. It's a divine collision that takes place that if, if you and I are lucky, he includes you and I in that divine collision to help somebody lead somebody to Christ. I am nowhere as near a Calvinist tonight. There is nothing in me that believes any of that at all, but I can't explain to you how God does all of that. He brings them under conviction. He brings them to there. He draws people. He does what he does. We preach. They get saved. So it's their faith. They get to the door, they can't get them in. And he looks at the one sick of the palsy as they let him down through the roof and the sick of the palsy, he says to him, son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Verse six, but there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Look, I know this is a little bit between the lines and if I've stretched this a little bit too much, I, I apologize for that. 
But we're talking about a room full of people. Now, I guarantee you, those Pharisees and scribes are not sitting on the back row. They want a front row seat so they don't miss anything, so they can pin something on my Savior and railroad him down the road and get him out of town and life's going to go back to normal and everything's going to be okay. Listen, when Jesus shows up, things happen. He broke up every funeral he ever attended. I suppose the funeral directors were a little disappointed in that. They didn't get their extra upgrade for the car charge to the cemetery. By the way, Jason Freeman needs something next week. More than he needed that night at the funeral home or that morning at the cemetery. It doesn't get hard until everybody goes away. And so they're sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man thus speak blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, why reason these things in your hearts? Jesus just, he absolutely read their minds. I think a little bit further, read the intent of their heart, the motives of their thinking. How many times through the years I've watched as people sat through invitations just reasoning and thinking, well, well, what, nothing's really going to happen here. God can't really do anything in these circumstances. Many years ago, I was preaching a camp for the Maslin Baptist Temple where Maslin Baptist College, uh, I think, still is probably training Bible preachers. And I remember the youth director there took me to the camp where we were going to have this, uh, this summer week of camp with, I don't know how many different churches came, but he said, wait till you see where we're going to preach. He said, this is so cool. We arrived in this little backwoods Ohio area, a very nice camp. Uh, facilities were, uh, sleeping cabins were nice. I had a nice place to stay, and my wife and I did. And that... Um, the diamond line, beautiful place. He said, he said, Brother Brown, you gotta see this. So he led me down this path. I felt like I needed a gun. Winding down and down and down and down and down into this into this bottom of, of a, a, a place. It, when you get down in them things, it's damp down there. It's clammy. And you have no idea how many mosquitoes there were. I mean, there were enough mosquitoes to pick you up and carry you away. I looked around. There was this little thing behind where you were to preach from. It was about this big around, and it it, it obviously was rotting. The pulpit was a telephone pole driven into the ground and cut off on a 45. About that big around, like that's where you put your body. There was really no place for anybody to come and kneel that wouldn't have been, uh, that would have been feasible. You'd have been in the mud everywhere. There was mud everywhere. 
And I said to the, I, I said to the youth director, I said, we can't do it. You were sitting on saw-off trees halfway across that were nailed into stumps that were in the ground. It, it, was, it was the crudest place I had ever seen in my life. And to be quite frank with you, I said, there is no, I told him this, there is no way that God's going to do anything down here with people swatting mosquitoes. I'm trying to keep them off me as we're down here. This is not going to work. We just need to have it up there where the dining facility is, put them up there where they can pay attention to the preaching, where God can do something that just can't happen down here. He was discouraged. We're not going to have it, I said. Well, let's just do it up there. He said, no, I don't think so. We've known each other for years. We're having it down there. I think he just had it down there because I was putting up a fuss about having it up there. I said, okay. So here we go on Monday night. I preach. We swat. I'd preach some more. We'd spray some bug spray. I'd preach some more. We'd swat. We'd squirm. We'd wiggle. We'd do everything under the sun but be able to get anything. I gave the invitation and it was just like a calf looking at a new gate to farm. Like, whoa, what, what's that there for? I said, okay. I got it. I said to, I, I said to the, the youth director, I said, Brother Bomber, can we go back up to the main thing now and do it up there? Nope, we're doing it down here. I said, this ain't working. He said, I didn't ask you to come here and administrate the camp. I asked you to come here and preach. Now, just go ahead and preach down there. I said, well, I need more off bug spray so I don't get infected with mosquito bites. Next night, we all marched back down there with our bug spray. You could smell it. I don't know when, and I don't know how. But someplace in the, middle of that in, in, in the middle of that service, there was a hush that fell over that, that, that outdoor uh, amphitheater, if you would. It was kind of shaped like an amphitheater. You could cut the silence with a knife. I saw teenage kids just sit up, slide up on the edge of, of those crude benches and hang on every word of that message. And when I gave the invitation, those kids rolled off those benches and laid in the mud, weeping and crying, begging God for forgiveness. I watched as their counselors led some of them to Christ. And then I watched as other counselors had other counselors out there. These are people that had been in church for over 20-some years. It was well after 11 p.m. when that service ended. And it was far, far longer in the imitation than I preach. I 
I fell on my knees and asked God to forgive me. For almost persuading us to be where he wouldn't have been. Well, it just can't happen today. We're living in a different time. The culture is, is not what it used to be. People are not the same. <laughs> People haven't changed. We're still depraved, low life, sinners. don't have an inkling in the world what it means to be spiritual unless God initiates it. And can I tell you, he wants to. John said, I saw him in the midst of the candlesticks. He finishes writing in chapter 3. He said he's at the door and he's knocking. You go back and look at it. He's knocking and it says, if anybody if somebody would just answer the door and bring him in, it might make a difference. It didn't say we all had to run to the door. It was a personal thing. It didn't say we needed to see him through the window. It didn't see we didn't need to, to, to know anything else. We just need to listen long enough to that voice and then turn and repent from the very things that are keeping him from being in our lives and being in this auditorium tonight. And I promise you, the same thing that happened at that camp will happen here tonight. But there were the Pharisees sitting there. And you know something? They're sitting there. They are literally in the way of the four people that are trying to get this one man to Christ. <laughs> I like what he says. Why reason these things in your heart? Is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise up, take up thy bed and walk? And now that's, that, that's kind of a rhetorical question in, 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 a, in a double sense. It's a two-edged sword here. Listen, it's certainly in the eyes of the Pharisee much more difficult for them To think that, well, it's harder for you to get him up walking. This guy's never walked before in his life. He said, which is it easier to do? Can I tell you something? It was far more difficult for that man to have his sins forgiven after what my Savior and your Savior went through for us to have our salvation and him, him as well. But I like it. Because he said to him, take up thy bed and walk. Now, can I, can I just, for just a moment here, we got one crowd sitting there. We got another crowd that God works on and has, and has some influence on. They're walking, and they're still sitting. He goes on to tell him in verse 11, go thy way into thine house. Immediately he rose up, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw it on this fashion. <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes I think the greatest miracle that we've ever experienced is one that we, we forget so much about tonight that we, we just lose sight of, of what it really is here. Look at, uh, 
oh, I want to say Mark chapter, let me just make sure I got this right, 11 and verse 6, I believe. No, that's not right. Maybe it's Matthew. Matthew 11, 5. John the Baptist is having a doubt problem. He's not sure it's Jesus anymore. He's not sure who he is, and he sends from prison, and Jesus sends back an answer to the messenger to go back and tell him. Here's what he tells John uh, through the messenger. He said, the blind receive their sight. These are all miracles tonight, are they not? The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and listed with these physical Healing miracles, the poor have the gospel preached to them. That's a miracle. That's a miracle. That's a modern day miracle that happens seven days a week all around the world. All of those missionaries that are over there are a miracle dispensing the gospel tonight. That's a miracle that's listed with being raised from the dead because of the presence of God. I was sitting in an auditorium many years ago in Somerset, Pennsylvania at a, at, a, at a meeting where there must have been 100 preachers and their wives. And the man that was speaking uh, was rather well known across the country. He had a very large bus ministry in, in Indianapolis, Indiana for a long time, a very large church there. Uh, There's not much left to it today. And he was closing a several-day meeting out. He was the last speaker. I had had a moment of eating some lunch and sitting next to him at at his request and talking to me and and, uh, asking me to get involved in some of the things that they were involved in. I really wasn't so sure whether I was interested or not at that time because it was para-ministry, if you would. It was beyond anything that really I needed to be doing. But I certainly was you know, entertaining the thought for a moment anyway as being kind. And i never forget, he got up to speak that day, and he said, this is the only sermon that I have that I read. He said, it's not my sermon. He said it was preached earlier on in the 1900s. He said, in fact, the man that wrote, wrote it was not even a preacher. He was just raised in a Christian home. He, the title of the sermon was Pearls of Paradise. If you can find it in its entirety, I suggest you get it. Keep it in your personal uh, uh, repertoire of things that are, are worth reading every year at least once. Pearls of Paradise. This man that uh, penned this sermon and, and spoke uh, spoke at a, a large convention was a Christian and raised in a Christian home. 
And he was challenged by a man that worshipped Allah who had a string of, of pearls on a gold strand around his neck, had 99 pearls on there uh, to represent the 99 names of Allah, and he could name all 99 names. And he challenged this, this statesman from the United States to give him 99 names of his Lord Christ. And he failed miserably. But he went home and he studied it and he began to list out all the names of Jesus Christ in the Bible. And, and then he began, he put that down on paper and he read that. And as that pastor read that other man's sermon, I began to look at my wife. I said, come on, let's go. We're out of here. And I grabbed her by the hand. I wasn't about to listen to somebody read somebody else's sermon. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. I'm, I'm done. This is, this is crazy. She pulled me back in the pew. She said, sit down and be quiet. I'm causing a scene here. And I sat there. My next thought was, who's this guy I think he is? Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God? Jonathan Edwards read that sermon, monotone. Hey, did you ever figure this out? It's not the sound of the thunder, but it's the lightning that you need to be worried about. And halfway through that message, I thought I knew God, but I didn't. I couldn't give you his full name. I didn't know those names, all of them. I read them but I couldn't recall them. That was the second time I was ready to get up. My wife said, sit down. Just let him finish. And she literally held me back at that moment. It wasn't long after he closed and finished reading that message. And the invitation began. And every able-bodied, breathing person in that auditorium fell on their face before God and wept. I remember returning to my seat and I didn't want it to end. I remember the pastor getting up and fumbling around and not knowing what to say or knowing what to do. He just didn't know. He just, he, what, what, God was there. He stood looking out at all of us, and we stood looking at him. And somebody on my right began to sing a verse of a hymn, a cappella from memory. You haven't heard anything until you heard a hundred men and a hundred preachers' wives singing in the presence of God. It closed and someone else over here started another one and it went on for hours. It's just, we just stood there in the presence of God. Changed. Different. This lady that I'm about to tell you about sat in this church in the last four years. 
I would go to her father's business on occasions when I would be in town and I would be off of the road. He would ask for my wife and I to come by every year when we returned home over the Christmas break or whenever we were in town that we might rehearse all the things that God would do for had done in the ministry and the things that we have saw and seen, he would often send money to my wife and I over the years, him and his wife. I don't know that we had regular support for many, many years, but I know that every time there was a need and no one else knew about it, somehow they knew about it. And that's because every morning they got on their knees and prayed for Jimmy Janet O'Brien. I remember the day I got the phone call. I was sitting in Naples, Florida in my parents' home, and I remember, I remember the phone call, and, and Dorothy was uh, uh, dying, and he, she was only just had a little bit of time left. She wanted to get on the phone with my wife. And I said to my wife, uh, we're leaving. We've got, we've got to go there now. And the last thing I was told, don't you leave where you're at now. You'll never make it. Just stay put. I can remember when the news came just a few hours later that she had passed, I, I began to get scared. For the first time in my ministry, I felt like I, I, I'm not even sure I'm, I'm living, and, uh, living and ministering on my own prayers. Can I even get it done on my own prayers? Because I know they prayed for me so much. And when I say they call out of the clear blue or I would call them out of the clear, they would never know what was going on. They, he would say, what's wrong? I know there's something wrong. Now, it didn't happen every time we talked, but when there was something wrong, he knew. And how he knew, I never, I never could, other than God whispered in his ear. Their daughter had gotten very sick when she was younger. In fact, she was taken to the Lehigh Hospital, Lehigh Valley Hospital, years and years and years and years ago, many years ago, and before I was born which was a long time ago. There was some kind of disorder with her, with her immune system and her white blood cells were multiplying very rapidly. She was in the ICU unit in the intensive care and she just, they couldn't figure out what was wrong. Back in those days, the ICU unit was more of a ward than it was a private room type situation. You would have many, many beds in there, more than maybe five or six people. They didn't overcrowd it, but there was enough people in there. They were all in there together, separated to some degree. The doctors came in and explained to her and her parents they did not know what was wrong. They didn't, we, we just, we don't know how to fix this. We don't know how to stop it. We, we give you the antibiotics. We've done everything we can. This is, if this doesn't change, we're sorry. We've done all we can. With that, her father looked and said, well, God's not through with us. I'll see you in the morning. And they left for the evening. She said she, she, she was lying on that bed there and things were quiet in the, in the, in the ICU unit and, and somebody that was in there had been, been hit by a car and almost every bone in their body was broke. There was another lady in there that was dying of cancer and, and, and somebody else was there and then the one spoke up and said, we, we heard what the doctor said. How is it that you sit there and try to read your Bible through all this? Is, is, can't God do anything for you? What, what, what are you talking about? Why are you, why are you talking up God all the time, you and your folks? What's the big deal? We don't, I don't see it. If there's a loving God and a God that wants to do something about this, why hasn't he done something about it for you? She went on to try to witness to him. Didn't get real far.
she said to me, Brother Jim, that night, in the middle of the night, all that you could see were the lights of all the ICU equipment. Quiet. She said, I don't know that I was wide awake or if I was dreaming or just hallucinating in the middle. She said, all I know is I was soaking wet. She said, my fever had broke. I was exhausted. She said, I, I could hear the lady in the bed a little distance away, and she was saying, Gloria. Gloria, he's here. Gloria, he's here. She said, I said, who's here? Gloria, he's here. Who's here? She said as quickly as it seemed to happen, it just kind of all calmed back down, and I really wasn't sure what they were talking about, whether they were, didn't really understand all of it, couldn't put it together. She said, all I know is the next morning I woke up, and my bed was soaking wet, and I was feeling better than I had since they put me in there. My mom and dad came in and said, they've been praying all night for me, and, they, and, and my fever was broke, and the doctor said, it won't be long. We'll get you IVs in you. We're going to uh, get you ready to go home. And she said, in a day or two, I went home. She said, years went by. Years. And she said, Brother Jim, I was walking on the streets of Easton, Pennsylvania, window shopping, when you could still walk on the streets of Easton, Pennsylvania, and window shop, when there were stores to look into. Yeah. She said, I was staring in this window at the shop, looking at stuff, looking at some clothes in there, and, and just looking at them, when all of a sudden, somebody's standing there next to me, and I turned, and I looked, and she looked at me, and I looked at her, and she said, you're not going to believe this, but there was a woman that was in that ICU unit with me that had the cancer. She said to me, I know you. You were the girl in the bed that left there before I ever did. She said, but you had cancer. They, they didn't think you were going to make it. She said, well, yeah, here I am. And then she looked to Gloria, she said, you, you, you don't know what happened, do you? Gloria said, no. She goes, I remember the night that, that, uh, that I, I kind of woke up and I, I was, the fever was breaking. I didn't know what was going on. And I could hear you saying, he's here, he's here. What were you talking about? Who was there? Who was in the room? She goes, you don't know. Gloria said, I, no, not really. I, I don't know what you're talking about. She said, oh. She said, I heard you talk about heaven. I heard you talk about having your sins forgiven and you could know for sure that when you died you were on your way to heaven and all that could be settled. I have a husband. I had kids at home. I've got this cancer. I'm not sure I was going to make it. She said, I, she said, Gloria, I wanted to believe so bad. I just couldn't. I wanted to believe. I wanted it to be so real. I wanted to know that, but I didn't know how to do it. I didn't. She said, but in the middle of the night... For the first time in my life, I knew that God was real because he was there. I didn't see him. And I can't say I heard him. 
but I sure felt the breeze of his robes when he walked by. She said, I've been in church for a few years now. My husband's been saved. My kids are all saved. I just know you're real. Somebody please answer the door. I've made it a point to study revival all of my life. I miss very little. But somehow there's always somebody God moves in that knows it before anybody else. And when the invitation is given, they slip out of their seat. They've opened the door to let him in. And God starts doing something that when the next person kneels next to them, Somehow they know it. And it moves around. I'm going to ask you something tonight. When was the last time that you let him in and you felt it and you knew it? You knew it because the Bible said where two or three are gathered together there in the midst of it, there I am in the midst of you. You knew that. But then you felt that. When was the last time you came to church and you said he's here. I know he's here. I know he's here. When was the last time you walked out of this auditorium and you felt clean? Do you understand what I'm talking about? Clean. When was the last time you walked out of here and you felt loved? You walked out of here and you felt like you could take on the world. Because all power is given.
given my very best to you, and I believe you've listened the very best you could, every one of you. I think he's here, but it doesn't matter what kind of thing. I thought we started off our service and there was a sweet spirit. My pastor asked me to speak a week ago. I was petrified. I've done this for a long time. But that last few minutes before I knew I had to get up here, I couldn't wait. Because I knew God was already doing something long before we'd ever get to this point. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around tonight. I just want to ask you one thing. Is he here? If you're here tonight and you'll say, Brother O'Brien, I believe, I sense the presence of God in my church house tonight. Would you please slip your hand up, please? And put him down. We're not going to have any music tonight? John the Revelator said, I heard him. The Bible said, Elisha said, I heard a still small voice. If he's speaking to you tonight, in a moment we're going to stand to our feet. You find a spot here. And you enjoy this moment with God. Would you stand to your feet very reverently, very quietly? If you need to come tonight, you come right now. Don't you wait.